Exodus 2 and 23 says, and it came to pass in the process of time, time, time matters, timing, it's timing issue. In the process of time, the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel, notice you're going to see some descriptors here that paint us a picture of where Israel is. So don't miss them. They sighed by reason of bondage. And they cried. And their cry came up to God by reason of bondage. And God heard their, verse 24, and God heard their groaning. So you got sighing because of bondage. You got crying. You got them crying out to God because of bondage. You got them groaning because of bondage. You getting a picture? We, we can read over that and miss that. So I want to make sure we catch that. We need to see the condition of these people. Because this is critical to what I believe the Lord wants us to see in his word today. And so here we have this people clearly, as has already been said, stated twice in just verse 23. They are in bondage. Now, did Israel choose to be in bondage? Uh, that's a trick question, isn't it? Technically, no. But somewhere along the way, they made choices that caused them to end up in bondage. Because I don't believe for a minute that God chose for them to be in bondage when he first took them to Egypt. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, when God remembers, that's not like you and I, it doesn't mean God forgot something and it's like, oh, it just came back to me as God. That's not what that means. That's, that's for you and I, right? I can't remember where I put my car keys and I laid them down two minutes ago. My wife's like, you're looking for your keys, aren't you? This is where they are. That's what 30 and a half years of marriage does, see? And she told me because it pleases me. Okay, so that's not what it, when it says God remembered, it doesn't mean God forgot and then it came back to his mind because they prayed. When it says God remembered, it means, it. and remember that first line we read in verse 23, in the process of time. So when Israel cried out because they're bonded and they're sighing, what happened is that cry came to the Lord and the Lord turned back to his covenant he'd made. He, he'd never broke his covenant. They had. But when they cried out because of their bondage, he's like, I'm going to continue my part of the covenant because of where they are now and because of their cry. All right. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and jo Jacob. Their forefathers. And God looked on the children of Israel and had respect to them. Skip down into chapter 3, verse number 6. Now, it's interesting. Just hold your hand there before we start reading. I didn't read these others. I'll just, for sake of time. This cry of Israel is coming before the Lord. They're in bondage to Egypt. When they went in, there were 75. There's a few more than that now. Okay, when it was Jacob and his 11 sons that went and joined with Joseph and their families, there were 75 of them that went into Egypt. They've grown considerably since then. And so this cry has come before the Lord. The Lord hears their groaning, hears their cry. The Lord remembers or turns back to his covenant that he's made and says, I'm going to continue my part of the deal now that they're holding up, they're crying out again.
and we go out in the next chapter to the backside of a desert, and there's an 80-year-old man tending sheep. And he sees a burning bush out in the middle of the desert. He's seen that before because it's hot. It gets hot. Dry bushes spontaneously combust. But this bush is burning, but it's not going anywhere. It's staying there. The bush is not consumed. Moses sees the bush. He recognizes, hold on, this is supernatural. The bush is not burning. So he turns aside. Thank God he still had interest in the supernatural and still believed in the supernatural working of God. Or he would have just passed on by and treated it as some anomaly. But he turned aside. He saw it and the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him. said, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Many of you know this story. And he turns there and the Lord begins to speak to him. Verse number 6. Moreover, he said, this is the Lord speaking to him there, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look on God. And the Lord said, again, notice the words. The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I'm come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Skip down to verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now in those Eight verses we read, we heard of people sighing, crying, groaning, afflicted, oppressed, in bondage. This does not sound like a good condition, would you agree? But this is where they are. And I'm telling you, this is where people without the Lord are. And this is where some people, unfortunately, even with the Lord, because they haven't let Him have access in every area of their life, are there are some that sit crying out in bondage, in affliction, in oppression, groaning. Let me paint a little more of this picture for you regarding Israel. I've already said it, 75 of them went into Egypt. But at a minimum, it's expected that there's give or take at least 2 million now. Two million. They have been there for 430 years. The people that are there that are now crying out and groaning because of bondage, it's all they've ever known. It's been their lifetime. It's just always been this way. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's just always been this way. It will never change. No, just dad's always been like that. My, I, this has just always been a part of my life. I can't shake it. Somebody hear the word of the Lord. They've 430 years in bondage. Their parents were in bondage. Their grandparents were in bondage. Their great-grandparents were in bondage. Four, keep on going. You know, If you do a minimum of so many years per generation, there had to be at least... I did quick math, and it's really quick math, but I did quick math. There had to be at least 25 generations back through 430 years. Maybe 20 if you went a little longer before they had kids. 430 years. 
It's all they've ever known. And you and I know just in our short lifespan, there's some things in our own life that we've lived with that after a year or two, we get the idea, this is never changing. It's just always going to be this way. I, or, or maybe there's something we witnessed in one of our parents or one of our family members when we were growing up, and then we deal with the same thing in our life, and we're like, you know what? It's just always been that way. And I, I think of stories I've heard and witnessed. You know, my grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. It's just never going to change. Things like that. I, I realize this is, but they were in bondage to Egypt. And that's all they'd ever known. I believe that somewhere along the way, through those 430 years, somebody had prayed, somebody had prayed, somebody had cried. But for whatever reason, I. I I think they probably prayed and cried. Why didn't the Lord respond to them? Sometimes people pray and cry with no true desire of change. They just need to hear themselves cry. It's an avenue of outlet. A release. Right? Like that person at work that says, man, can I talk to you? And you're thinking... Man, I just really don't know that I got time today. You didn't say that, but you're thinking that because you like, no, when I talk to them, they just vent. Anybody know somebody? Don't raise your hand. And definitely don't point. No, I'm kidding. Right? No. But sometimes that's what we do in our prayer. We're dealing with things in our life and we, but we cry out, but there's no true desire to change. Or if there is a desire to change, we may not express it verbally, but in our heart of hearts, we know. In our motive, we know. I'll change, Lord, if you meet my conditions for change. But I'm not sure about changing the way you want to change. But at this point, 430 years of bondage, of oppression, of affliction, of crying out. I, I, I just believe that finally there was enough that had enough. And we're said we just I don't I almost believe it was for their children or something. This can't continue. I know it was that way for dad and grandpa and great grandpa, but I don't want my children to be in bondage and their children and in their closet of prayer crying out to Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord, hear us, change this, break this bondage somehow. And the word of God tells us their cry came to the Lord, their groaning came to the Lord. Their sighing came to the Lord and the Lord heard it. And when he heard it, he's like, I made a covenant with them. And what I'm hearing right now tells me they're wanting to participate in their part of the covenant. I've not let mine down, but I'm willing to do what I said I'd do. Now that they're doing the if part, I'll do the then part. Their cry came to the Lord and the Lord had a man on the backside of the desert. One man? That was it. I, Lord, you know there's two million people, right? Or more. You got one man? That's it? Yeah. And you know he left Egypt 40 years before. And you also know he didn't necessarily display the qualities of a great leader when he left. He had killed somebody. 
And when he thought he was in trouble and had to have confrontation, he fled and hid. Not exactly top-tier leadership qualities, Lord. This is your choice? Yeah. Oh, and then when the Lord told him, I'm going to send you, and you are going to lead my people out of Egypt. We read it there in verse 10. We're not going to read it later, but you can read the next few verses after that. He starts telling God why he's not the man. What he can't do, what his problems are, what he's incapable of, what his inadequacies are, all the reasons. Oh, so great. We got a guy that murdered somebody. We got somebody left as a leader as soon as he had confrontation. We've got somebody that the moment God asks him to do something, he shows how confident he's not. Perfect. That's got to be the right leader to lead out two million people. Isn't it something how we place our human worldly qualifications on people's lives and even more so on our own lives, whether God could or would use us in any great way? I'm going to give you a simple revelation. It's not about how great you and I are ever. It's about how great he is. I said it earlier today, but it has been in my spirit all day long before the service. So I'll say it again. If you think your failure disqualifies you from God using you, you are being deceived by the adversary. You are not that powerful. If you think your failures capable of telling God what he can and can't do, and limiting the power of God to use you, you're saying, I think my failure is stronger than God's ability. Impossible. If you're still here, God's not done. Somebody hear me again. I don't care if this is just for one person. If you're still here, God is not done. And let me say this, if you've got a loved one that's lost, but they're still breathing air, God's not done. If you've got a wayward child or a wayward loved one, if you've got a friend, you've been, if they're still alive, God's not done. He gets the final say. I've said it before, and I'm sure I'll say it again. If the adversary could destroy them, they'd already be dead. But God said, no. And so I'd pray until, I'd press until, I'd cry out until, I'd groan until, I'd reach until, I'd keep pressing to have the mind, the heart, the ear of God who is a deliverer. So their cry came before the Lord. 430 years of bondage, generation after generation after generation after generation. And there are some of us, no doubt, probably almost all of us. I'd probably just say all of us. All of us. Yes, definitely all of us. Because we're human, that's how I know. Every single one of us, we have things generations through that have been passed along the way. Handed down from generations. Some you weren't even aware of. And you, Why do I battle with this? I, I can tell you, I, I have watched. You know, my, I came from a dis, what we call a dysfunctional family. And so, be, 
because of different things when I was a child, I've dealt with different things along the way in my life and my thinking and the way my mind works and the Lord having to heal things in my mind and my spirit and my body and learning to forgive and all kinds of stuff the Lord's had to do that way. My kids, by no means have they grown up in a perfect home, but they got a pretty decent dad and a pretty amazing mom. We've always been there. They've always had a home. They've, they've always been cared for. I remember when my eldest, I watched him struggling with things, and they were exactly like things I dealt with because of what I'd gone through. And I remember thinking, I was praying like, God, why? Why? And the Lord dealt with me. There were generational things. And in my treatment of him, talking to him, I, I don't think he would tell you I treated him badly or poorly. I, I'm not saying I treated him perfectly. Don't get me wrong. But you understand what I mean? I realize those things that held on to me, they affected him. He was carrying something he was never meant to carry. These people were reading about that cried out to the Lord. They didn't choose to be there. They weren't there because of their own choice. They were there because of choices of generations before. Generations before made choices. And the bondage just became greater and greater and greater and greater. Until some generation, thank God for this generation in Exodus 2 and 3. They had enough. And they cried out to the Lord. They groaned to the Lord. They let their voice be heard. And God heard them. I watched that with my own, and the Lord began to deal with me. And he said, when you'll realize that in me, you're no longer a victim, your children won't deal with it anymore. See, there's some things that we need to recognize. When God delivers us, I don't speak about it from a victim standpoint anymore. I speak about it from a victory standpoint. You say, oh, that's semantics. Oh, no, it's not. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And how you and I speak to our children and to the next generation matters. Yes, should they hear some of the stories of what we've gone through and how good God's been? But yes, they should hear it as, listen what God brought me through. Listen to how God delivered me. Listen to how I was down, but God lifted me up. Listen to what I had to get my mind healed of, and God did this. Let me tell you the miracle-working power of God. Versus, woe is me, but thank God, no more. It's not semantics. I need my spirit healed, my mind healed, and it will change what my voice says. Because out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth speaks. That's what the Word says. Whatever's in my heart is what comes out of my mouth. You ever said something and said, where'd that come from? Now you know. Some of you like that. Some of you don't. I, I don't like it sometimes either. Like, oh, I just said that, didn't I? It's in my heart. So these people cried out to the Lord. God had man. So 430 years of bondage. God must, God's got to have some miraculous plan, doesn't he? To deliver this many people from a powerful Egyptian nation and army. They're not readily going to give up their workforce. It's free labor. It's free labor. Why would they give them up? So God must going to be raise up this huge, massive army. 
get all these other nations to swoop in and how you do it. Let's see what he's going to do. Exodus chapter 3, skip down, please. Oh, we already did that. Exodus chapter 12. There you go. We just skipped nine chapters. Exodus chapter 12, verse number 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt and said, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. I want you to see that verse right there. See how powerful this is. You ever read verses in the Bible and you're like, that's nice that's there, but don't mean much to me, to you, right? That verse means a whole lot right there. I'm pointing back there like you guys can see that. You guys are like, what's he pointing at? That verse right there means a whole lot to you. Notice what the Lord, this is the Lord talking. The Lord said this. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. What the Lord just said is, from now on, what I'm getting ready to do, I am going to so transform and change the lives, the destiny, and the direction of the children of Israel that they're just changing their calendar. And from now on, this is where their years will always start because of what I'm getting ready to do. They may have been following a different calendar until this point, but because I'm getting ready to step in to a cry of a people, Moses, Aaron, make sure they understand. I don't know what calendar they've been following before, but now this is the beginning of months. This will now be the first month for the rest of their lives. That's why the Lord said it. God, when he steps into a life and brings deliverance from bondage and oppression, you should mark it down and recognize this was the day my life really began. This was the day I stepped out of bondage and into true living. He rewrote their calendar. And he said, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the house is too little for the lamb, take his, let his neighbor next to his house take it. Skip down. Verse 5. Your lamb will be without blemish, a male of the first year. Take it out from the sheep or the goats. Keep it till the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood the blood of the lamb and strike it on the side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. Praise God. Skip down verse 11. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Notice that verse. That almost seems odd if you didn't know the rest of the story. But the Lord is indicating to them I am getting ready to do something that's so significant. Change, you better be ready to move after I do what I do. I'm telling you, when he breaks the bonds of oppression, when he breaks the bonds of affliction, when he breaks the bonds of generations and they come off, you'll know they came off. And you should just be ready. That takes faith. That takes faith. Says, you know what? I'm getting ready for what God's about to do. 
I feel such a witness of the Holy Ghost for some of you. You've been calling out to God for some spiritual change and works in your life. You're like, nothing's changing. I see a word right here in the in Exodus. You know what? Why don't you just express some faith and say, you know what? I'm going to just start getting dressed. I'm going to start putting some shoes on my feet. I'm going to proverbially say, I'm going to put a staff. I'm going to get ready for what I'm expecting him to do. That way he'll know I'm ready. It's an expression of faith. Maybe I'll put it to you this way. If he did what you ask him or expect him to do, how would that change for you? Then why don't you start preparing for that change now in faith? Verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt this night. And I'll smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man, beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I'll execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood, that blood on the doorpost, it will be a token for you upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day will be to you for a memorial. Skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Draw out and take a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you'll take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood in the basin. Put it on the lintel, the two side posts with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is no surprise. This is no deep revelation to anyone, I don't believe. This is the first Passover. This is, of course, where the Jewish Passover comes from. It is an acknowledgement that the blood of a lamb on their doorposts and the angel of the Lord coming through Egypt wrought a great deliverance. Can you imagine at the beginning if someone was praying, one of those however many that were crying that came to the Lord that we read about in chapter 2 and 3, can you imagine if the Lord came to them and said, hey, don't worry, I've got a plan. I've got a man that lived here 40 years ago on the other side of the desert, and I'm going to have people take some blood from a lamb, and you guys will be out of here. That sounds almost silly, doesn't it? Silly to us. But God's ways are so far above our ways. And he had to do it this way because he knows the end from the beginning. And he was establishing something with Israel. And anytime he establishes something that's eternal, it involves blood. It's a covenant. And he said, I'll pass over you. This miraculous miracle. John chapter 1 and 39, we fast forward to the New Testament as I hasten. We find very familiar passage of Scripture. We find John the Baptist in the Jordan baptizing people. 
And John looks up and he sees Jesus coming. And he sees Jesus coming and he says to the crowd gathered around, he says, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That meant something to those that heard. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Because not only had they been celebrating the Passover every year for years after year after year, and the blood of a lamb year after year after year, but they had also been sacrificing a lamb on the Day of Atonement year after year after year. And the blood of that lamb is what pushed their sin forward one more year. We don't have time to study that today. That's the tabernacle that we talked about earlier briefly. But they would sacrifice a lamb. The blood of that lamb would be carried in and poured on the mercy seat inside the tabernacle in the holiest of holies between the cherubim. And the glory of the Lord would come down and accept the sacrifice and fill the temple and the sins of Israel would be pushed forward one more year. That was called the Day of Atonement. So when they, when John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus coming and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, I promise you, all those Jews standing around on the banks of a Jordan, they turned and looked. They said, What's he saying? We know what a lamb means to God. We know what the you're pointing to a man, and you're saying, if you're saying then that's God wrapped in flesh. That's the Messiah we've been waiting on. This could it be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? What was instituted hundreds and hundreds of years before when the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt was simply a pattern for them to hold in memorial so that when the Lord Jesus Christ came, God manifested in the flesh, they should have recognized this is what we've been memorializing. This is why we've been keeping it in memory. It wasn't just about him bringing us out. It's about him taking us in. Luke chapter 22. I'm skipping so much stuff, but you'll get the gist. We need to lay hold on the word of God today. It's more than just some routine they were going through. Why did the Lord do it that way to deliver two plus million people from bondage and oppression and affliction? Because he knew one day I'm going to deliver billions. If they'll act according to my word, I'll deliver billions by the blood of a lamb. Luke chapter 22, starting there with verse number eight. This should sound familiar, or at least we should be able to connect the dots. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Just by reading that verse, we know that it must be the first month of the year now. And it must be around the 10th to the 14th day of the year now. Because they are again getting ready to celebrate the Passover. And they said to him, where will you that we prepare? He said to them, behold, when you're entered into the city, you'll meet a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him to the house where he enters. And you'll say to the goodman of the house, the master says to you, where's the guest chamber where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished there. Make ready. And they went and found, as he said to them, they made ready the Passover. When the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I say to you, I will not any more either of till it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Notice that statement. This is so significant what Jesus just said. I will not any more eat thereof. He was indicating to them, the reason you've been eating this Passover is getting ready to change. This is the last one like this I'm eating with you. After this one, it's different. Now, he told Israel, you keep it as a memorial forever. So you're supposed to keep it. But he has. He's God. He can change why you keep it. Well, really, he's not changing why. He's just revealing why you've been keeping it all this time. After this, I'll no more eat it. What's he doing? He's getting ready. Just like that calendar change, he's getting ready to make a significant change. Praise God. Verse 17, and he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread, he gave thanks and break it and gave to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying this cup is the New Testament. In my blood, which is shed for you. I want you to notice something here. He's sitting around the table with his 12 apostles. We often call it the Last Supper, right? There's a famous picture in uh, Milan, Italy, that's painted called the Last Supper. Sort of funny, all 12 of them sitting on the same side of the table, but there they are. Um, sorry, that's always been humorous to me. Um, and so makes for a good picture, I guess. But there they are, these 12 disciples, they're all Jews. You understand? These 12 disciples are all Jews. They know what they're partaking of. This is not new to them. This has been a product of their life all along the journey. The stories have been passed from generation to generation of the Passover. But when Jesus breaks the bread, the unleavened bread, which is what the Israelites had when they left Egypt, when they went into the wilderness, they had unleavened bread. And so they're remembering that when he breaks the bread, he doesn't say this is a reminder of the unleavened bread that your forefathers carried out of Egypt when God delivered them so many years ago. He just changed the narrative. He broke the bread and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. He did not point to the past at this Passover. At this Passover, he pointed to the future. At this Passover, he said, this cup that you're drinking of, this fruit of the vine, it's not representative anymore of the blood on the doorpost. This is my blood shed for you. The Passover for hundreds of years had always been looking back, looking back, looking back, looking back. But at this Passover, Jesus said, this is the last one looking back. Matter of fact, when I'm eating it with you, I've been desiring to eat this with you, he said. Because now I'm looking to the future. And from now on, when you eat of it, you'll look back at the past. But you're not going to look all the way back to Israel and Egypt. You're going to look back to a cross. You're going to look back and you're going to see my body slain for you. You're going to see my blood poured out for you. This is the chain. They realized all of a sudden, that's what it was. 
the Lamb of God. Is it any wonder, Revelation? Hear me, this wasn't just some neat idea that popped up in the mind of the Lord once he saw how troublesome the world was after a while. Oh no, Revelation 13 and 8 declares to us clearly and plainly, he was the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. It was in the mind of God before the beginning of time that he knew he would have a creation, but he knew given our own choices, we would make terrible choices and we would need a deliverer. So he knew I'll become the deliverer. I'll become the lamb. I'll make a way. And so he was slain even from the foundation of the world. Stand with me this morning, please. I know these are, I'm not going to call them simple scriptures. God forbid. But it's so crystal clear. The lamb slain, the blood shed, deliverance from bondage, deliverance from affliction, deliverance from oppression. The biggest difference. They had to slay a, a lamb year after year after year. But I read in Hebrews, he died once for all. And now you and I can enter into the holiest of holies. That represents entering into the very presence of God because of the blood of the lamb. I don't know what spiritual bondage you may have in your life today. I don't know what affliction or oppression may be holding you captive. I don't know what things in your life or your heart or your mind or your spirit where you've just said it's always going to be this way. I've wanted to change, but I just don't think it will. I would that you would hear God's word today and understand it's the very same God that brought Israel out. That it's the very same God that wrapped himself in flesh and became the spotless lamb that hung on Calvary's tree and shed his blood to break the yoke of bondage from any life that would come to him. But you still got to apply the blood. It's not enough that it was shed. It also has to be applied. He didn't say kill the lamb and then, then just stand inside your house. He said, you got to apply it to your doorpost and then stay inside. If you go out, we have to have the blood of Jesus applied to our life. It will break every bond, every yoke. The blood is more powerful. It pierces through every spiritual bondage. It will pierce through every fortress in our mind. It can tear down strongholds. His blood has the power to heal, it has the power to deliver, and it definitely has the power to save. The blood of the Lamb of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the blood of a spotless Lamb.